0: Hello, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz back again for questions six through ten in internal medicine essentials hematology. I am still having some trouble with this Bell's palsy, but hopefully it sounds a little bit better than it did a few days ago at the last recording. I am also on call this weekend with my team, so it is possible I may get a page in the middle of this session, and I apologize for that. If I do, I'm seeing lots of nice patients this weekend, and my resident may be calling me to discuss a few of them. So starting with question number six... A 77-year-old woman is evaluated for anemia that has developed over the past year. She is asymptomatic and is active and able to engage in her usual activities without shortness of breath or excessive fatigue. Medical history is significant for hypertension and hyperlipidemia, for which she takes lisinopril and atorvastatin. On physical exam, temperature is 36.7 degrees centigrade. Blood pressure is 137 over 78 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 88 per minute and respiratory rate is 17 per minute. Body mass index is 19. Cardiac examination reveals an S4 and the remainder of the examination is normal. Laboratory studies reveal a hemoglobin of 11.4 grams per deciliter, leukocyte count of 6,200 per microliter, platelet count 225,000 per microliter, mean corpuscular volume of 90, reticulocyte count of 0.8% of erythrocytes, ferritin is 187 nanograms per ml, iron is 78 micrograms per deciliter. Iron binding capacity total is 356 micrograms per deciliter. Creatinine is 1.5 milligrams per deciliter. The peripheral blood smear is compatible with a normochromic normocytic anemia. Which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's anemia? A. Advanced age. B. Anemia of inflammation. C. Iron deficiency. Or D. Kidney disease. And once again, those choices are A, advanced age, B, anemia of inflammation, C, iron deficiency, or D, kidney disease. I will give you a moment to contemplate that. So the answer here is actually D, chronic kidney disease. So this patient's uh, anemia is most likely secondary to her kidney disease. As you will recall from your preclinical years, erythropoietin is produced in the kidney and kidney disease is associated with an underproduction anemia caused by renal cortical loss. So the anemia of kidney disease is usually normochromic and normocytic with an inappropriately low reticulocyte count for the level of anemia present. Because remember, if you don't have erythropoietin being produced, you can't stimulate the bone marrow and ramp up those reticulocytes. So patients with minor increases in serum creatinine levels may have reduced erythropoietin levels. Uh, However, before attributing the anemia to chronic kidney disease, you have to think about other potential causes of the anemia, as they obviously did in this case. The usual evaluation you do is a complete blood count, which is how you would discover they were anemic to begin with, with erythrocyte indices, an absolute reticulocyte count to see if they're quote-unquote reticking or not, a serum iron and total iron binding capacity, or TIBC. You do percent transferrin saturation, serum ferritin, and you'd exclude gastrointestinal bleeding uh, depending on the clinical setting, of course. So as far as uh, um, the other uh, answers here, uh, I think it almost is never the correct answer to blame something on someone's age. So the prevalence of anemia does increase with age, uh, but usually these patients will have some other associated disease process, such as chronic kidney disease, as in this case, or they'll have iron deficiency or an inflammatory state. Ascribing anemia to advanced age, as I said, is usually not going to turn out to be uh, to go well for you on an exam. Uh, Anemia of inflammation is associated with a normal or low serum iron level, a low TIBC, which it was not in this case, as you recall, and an elevated serum ferritin level, which it actually was in this case. Uh, So that was in the differential. But because the uh, TIBC was not low, this was not anemia of chronic inflammation. Uh, And an iron deficiency is associated with an elevated TIBC and reduced serum ferritin level. So this patient has a normal serum iron level, TIBC, and serum ferritin level, so that made iron deficiency highly unlikely and improbable. So the key point in this question is anemia due to kidney disease is caused by an underproduction of erythropoietin and is usually a normochromic and normocytic anemia associated with an inappropriately low reticulocyte count for the level of anemia present. So jumping on to question number seven here, a 32-year-old man is hospitalized because of a two-day history of acute pain in his back, chest, and extremities, along with nausea and vomiting. The pain has not responded to oral hydromorphone therapy. The patient has sickle cell disease and has been hospitalized twice in the past year for similar problems. On physical examination, temperature is 38.7 degrees centigrade. Blood pressure is 130 over 80 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 104 per minute and respiratory rate is 20 per minute. Oxygen saturation on room air is 92%. Cardiac examination reveals an S4. Wheezes are heard on auscultation of the lungs. The abdomen is non-tender. Laboratory studies are significant for normal kidney function and no evidence of proteinuria. A chest radiograph shows an infiltrate in the right upper lobe of the lung. Treatment is started with intravenous 0.9%, or otherwise known as normal saline, patient-controlled morphine, ceftriaxone, azithromycin, and an inhaled beta-agonist. Erythrocyte transfusion is also begun. Over the next three days, the patient's symptoms resolve. Which of the following is the most appropriate long-term management of this patient's sickle cell disease? A. Captopril, B. Hydroxyurea, C. Prophylactic Penicillin, or D. Recombinant Erythropoietin. And again, those choices are A, captopril, B, hydroxyurea, C, prophylactic penicillin, or D, recombinant erythropoietin. So contemplate that a moment and enter your answer. And your answer should be B, if you got it correct. Uh, so the idea here is to diagnose and appropriately uh, take care of acute chest syndrome. Uh, and these patients with acute chest syndrome will likely benefit from long-term hydroxyurea therapy. So acute chest syndrome is the most common form of pulmonary disease in patients with sickle cell disease and is also a major cause of morbidity and mortality. I've seen different numbers for this. Uh, it's lower than it used to be, but I've seen as low as and as high as 30% in some settings. So you really have to be aggressive in treating this particular entity in patients with sickle cell disease. So therapy with hydroxyurea augments levels of hemoglobin F, which inhibits intracellular polymerization of hemoglobin S, reduces the number of acute pain episodes in patients with sickle cell disease by 50%, and decreases the frequency of the acute Chest syndrome by 40%. So, in one nine year follow up uh, study from a a two year multicenter double blind randomized placebo controlled trial, showed that hydroxyurea use was associated with a 40% reduction in mortality rates in such patients. Daily oral hydroxyurea therapy is indicated for patients who have three or more acute pain episodes yearly that require inpatient parenteral opioid therapy. So that's not even with chest, uh, acute chest syndrome. We're talking about just with um, pain crises. So if they have two or three a year, uh, hydroxyurea therapy is indicated. The diagnosis of acute chest syndrome, if you're wondering how that's actually made, is established by identifying an infiltrate on chest radiographs that involves at least One lung segment and is not due to atelectasis. And then associated findings in that setting include one or more of the following, chest pain, temperature greater than 38.5 degrees centigrade, and then uh, the physical findings of tachypnea, wheezing, uh, cough, or the development of increased work of breathing, such as retractions, and hypoxemia relative to baseline oxygen saturation values. And if you go back to the question, you'll note that this particular patient has a number of those things. Um, So as far as uh, treatment with an ACE inhibitor goes, this patient has normal serum creatinine level and normal levels of microalbumin, therefore ACE inhibitor therapy is not indicated at this time. Uh, In some situations with sickle cell patients, it might be if they had proteinuria and evidence of kidney disease. As far as the uh, answer about the prophylactic penicillin goes, uh, you would use that in children. So if you haven't done your pediatrics clerkship yet, this may be useful information. You use that in children up to the age of five years, um, or you could use a macrolide antibiotic if they were pen allergic Uh, because this decreases the risk of infections known to trigger the acute chest syndrome, but antibiotic therapy is not useful prophylactically in older patients. As far as the recombinant erythropoietin goes, uh, you would use that to manage anemia due to underproduction of erythropoietin, as in the previous question Uh, in patients who have sickle cell disease, who develop chronic kidney failure, and that has not occurred in this patient, so you would not have a reason for starting EPO. Uh, So the key point in this question is, in patients with sickle cell disease, hydroxyurea therapy reduces the number of acute pain episodes by 50% and decreases the frequency of the acute chest syndrome by 40%. Question number eight. A 17-year-old girl is evaluated in the emergency department for progressive fatigue, shortness of breath, and lethargy over the past week. The patient had mild flu-like symptoms several weeks ago with fever and joint pains, but these symptoms have improved. Medical history is significant for sickle cell disease, hemoglobin SS, that is. She has had several pain crises, but no acute chest syndrome or stroke. Her only medication is folic acid daily. On physical examination, temperature is 35.7 degrees centigrade, blood pressure is 96 over 55 millimeters of mercury, pulse rate is 114 per minute, and respiratory rate is 22 per minute. Other than tachycardia, the cardiopulmonary examination is normal. There is no lymphadenopathy or splenomegaly and no rash. Results of laboratory studies show a hemoglobin level of 5.2 grams per deciliter compared with 8.2 grams per deciliter three months ago. So she's down about three grams of hemoglobin over the three months. And a reticulocyte count of 0.1% of erythrocytes. A chest radiograph is normal. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, aplastic crisis. B, hyperhemolytic crisis. C, megaloblastic crisis. Or D, splenic sequestration crisis. So lots of crises to choose from. A, aplastic crisis. B, hyperhemolytic crisis. C, megaloblastic crisis. Or D, splenic sequestration crisis. So I'll give you a moment to contemplate that. So the answer here is A. Uh, This is an A-plastic crisis. Um, This patient with sickle cell disease has acute worsening of her chronic anemia, and uh, they give you that very clear history of a viral syndrome uh, a few weeks ago where she presented with fever and arthralgia, and this would be consistent with a parvovirus B19 infection. An aplastic crisis can occur when patients with chronic hemolytic anemia and shortened erythrocyte survival, which she would have from her sickle cell disease, are infected with the parvovirus B19, which leads to suppression of erythrocyte production, and uh, usually a pure red cell aplasia, by the way, and the inability to maintain erythrocyte production needed to replace the hemolyzed cells. So again, just to emphasize that, and we'll probably come back to this, I'm going to bat in the infectious disease section of this book. The parvovirus B19 tends to cause uh, uh, a uh, suppression of erythrocyte production. Um, so in other words, a re- pure red cell aplasia. Uh, although occasionally can cause pancytopenia as well, I understand. So confirmation, if you're wondering how you would diagnose this, would be obtained by demonstrating IgM antibodies against the parvovirus B19, or you could do polymerase chain reaction or PCR studies detecting uh, parvovirus B19 DNA. So the answer here is aplastic crisis, and it was dec- secondary to parvovirus B19. What about the other uh, question- answers that are incorrect in this question? So megaloblastic crisis refers to an acquired anemia occurring in patients with increased folate demands, such as those with chronic hemolysis, and rarely pregnant women, uh, children with accelerated growth, or in the elderly. We hardly ever see this, by the way. Uh, And um, while her low reticulocyte count could be consistent with a megaloblastic crisis, uh, it would be unlikely so acutely after a viral illness, which is the big clue in this question, and would be very unlikely in a patient who takes chronic folic acid replacement, which they told you about in the question, although I don't know if you noticed that. Now, regarding splenic sequestration crisis, this is the result of splenic vaso-occlusion and splenic pooling of erythrocytes causing a rapid drop in hemoglobin concentration, reticulocytosis, and rapidly enlarging spleen. Uh, this is often accompanied by left upper quadrant abdominal pain, and splenomegaly would not be characterized by a very low reticulocyte count, so she would be reticking in that situation. The other reason I would not have chosen this answer is because by the age of 17, many uh, sickle cell anemia patients have completely infarcted their spleen because of their vaso-occlusive episodes and pain syndromes. So I think it's less likely that her spleen would be functional at this time. So the key point in this question is, aplastic crisis can occur when patients with chronic hemolytic anemia and shortened erythrocyte survival are infected with parvovirus B19, which leads to suppression of erythrocyte production. Question number nine. Um, You're going to know everything you need to know about, hopefully, about about sickle cell anemia by the end of these questions today. A 19-year-old man is admitted admitted to the hospital because of sickle cell pain crisis. Over the next 48 hours, he develops worsening dyspnea, chest pain, and fever. What could be going on there, you ask yourself? On physical examination, temperature is 38 degrees centigrade. Blood pressure is 123 over 65 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 118, and respiratory rate is 22 minutes and is labored. Oxygen saturation is 86% with the patient breathing oxygen, 6 liters per minute by nasal cannula. There is no jugular venous distention. Cardiopulmonary examination discloses decreased bilateral breast sounds at the lung basis, but no crackles or S3. There is no peripheral edema. Results of laboratory studies show a hemoglobin level of 4.9 grams per deciliter, a reticulocyte count of 4.4% of erythrocytes, and a leukocyte count of 6,900 per microliter, with a normal differential. Chest radiograph shows multi-lobar infiltrates that were not present on the admission chest x-ray. Broad-spectrum antibiotics are begun, and incentive spirometry is initiated. Which of the following is the most appropriate additional treatment? You'll get this right if you are listening to question number seven. A, erythrocyte transfusion, B, fluid bolus, C, furosemide, or D, hydroxyurea. Again, answers are A, erythrocyte transfusion, B, fluid bolus, C, furosemide, or D, hydroxyurea. Actually, maybe question 7 won't help you with this. Let's see how you do. So key in your answer. So answer here is A, the most appropriate treatment would be an erythrocyte transfusion So this patient, uh, as you noted from question number seven, uh, meets the criteria for acute chest pain syndrome, which include identification of a new infiltrate on a chest X-ray that involves at least one lung segment and is not due to atelectasis, temperature uh, which is greater than 38.5 degrees centigrade, tachypnea, wheezing, or cough, or labored breathing, and hypoxia relative to baseline O2 saturation values. Uh, management, as you will recall, includes empiric, broad-spectrum antibiotics, supplemental oxygen, pain medication to diminish chest splinting, bronchodilators dilators if reactive airways is present, and avoidance of overhydration. Erythrocyte transfusion is indicated if the hypoxia persists despite supplemental oxygen, and, has, and that has occurred in this patient, so you would want to give him erythrocyte transfusions for his anemia Erythrocyte exchange transfusion may be preferred if the hypoxia continues to progress despite the erythrocyte transfusion. So regarding the other answers that are incorrect, a fluid bolus wouldn't be indicated in this patient because he does not have hypovolemia or hypotension in the question. Um, You probably would still give him uh, maintenance IV fluids um, to keep him euvolemic if he's not eating well. Furosemide uh, would be helpful in someone who is hypervolemic, uh, but there is no clinical evidence to support the diagnosis in this patient, and furosemide-induced hypovolemia would be, you'd want to avoid that because it can lead to increased sickling of his cells. Hydroxyurea is effective, as we talked about earlier, for decreasing the incidence of acute chest syndrome over time. But is not indicated for treatment in the acute setting. So maybe you went for that answer um, and not for the erythrocyte transfusion, but hopefully you got this correct. It would be erythrocyte transfusion. So key point in this question is that management of the acute chest syndrome in patients with sickle cell disease includes empiric broad spectrum antibiotics, supplemental oxygen, pain medication, avoidance of overhydration. Bronchodilators as needed, and erythrocyte transfusion for persistent hypoxia despite despite supplemental oxygen. And last question in this question set is question number 10. A 38-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department because of severe diffuse pain. The patient has sickle cell disease. She is treated with hydration and opioid medication for an acute pain crisis. Her pain is significantly relieved, and she is subsequently admitted to the hospital. Three days after admission, she continues to have significant pain in her right hip that is only moderately relieved with pain medication. On physical examination, temperature is 37.1 degrees centigrade, blood pressure is 128 over 75 millimeters of mercury, pulse rate is 85 per minute, and respiratory rate is 12 per minute. Cardiopulmonary and abdominal examinations are unremarkable. There is tenderness to palpation over the right hip and marked pain on passive or active range of motion of the hip. She is unable to bear weight on her right side. Results of laboratory studies are significant for a hemoglobin level of 9.7 grams per deciliter and a leukocyte count of 5,500 per microliter with a normal differential which of the following is the most likely cause of this patient's persistent hip pain? A, avascular necrosis, B, osteoarthritis, C, osteomyelitis, or D, rheumatoid arthritis. Again, those choices are A, avascular necrosis, B, osteoarthritis, C, osteomyelitis, or D, rheumatoid arthritis. So key in your answer there. The answer here is A, which is avascular necrosis, this patient has avascular necrosis, which is a very common complication in adults with sickle cell disease in whom repeated vaso-occlusive crises lead to infarcts and degeneration in the marrow-containing bone. Uh, AVN most commonly affects the femoral and humeral heads and may be asymptomatic and identified only radiographically. Symptomatic AVN of the hip can be extremely patient. Uh, painful in patients, which I've seen a few times myself, with sickle cell disease. Treatment is typically similar to treatment of pain crises and includes hydration and appropriate analgesia. Uh, Symptomatic AVN has a high likelihood of progressing to femoral head collapse, uh, which usually necessitates surgical intervention and decompression or possibly even uh, joint replacement, but joint replacement is usually delayed as long as possible because of the high failure rate of these uh, joint replacements in patients with sickle cell disease. So the answer here is avascular necrosis. As to the other uh, incorrect answers, uh, osteoarthritis in multiple joints occurs in patients with longstanding sickle disease, but that would usually be over time, uh, be unusual in this young patient, and it's also just a single uh, joint um, and is a little too acute and severe to be osteoarthritis. Uh, patients with sickle cell disease and avian are also at increased risk of osteomyelitis because of areas of necrotic bone and splenic dysfunction. Uh, sort of a little key point here would be that uh, one of the things they can get is a salmonella osteomyelitis, actually. The clinical presentation of AVN and osteomyelitis may be similar, although, this patient's persistent pain following an acute pain crisis and As you noted in the question, lack of evidence of active infection suggests AVN is the most likely diagnosis over osteomyelitis. They would give you more indication like elevated white count and fever and so forth and so on if this was osteomyelitis. And finally, uh, if you've done your rheumatology questions to date, from the rheumatology section you would not have answered rheumatoid arthritis. You're giving this patient two diseases, but it's also unlikely because involvement of only one hip without in involvement of the metacarpophalangeal joints and the PIPs and all that uh, would be unusual presentation of this disorder and in this particular patient so the key point here is that avascular necrosis results from repeated vaso occlusive crises causing infarcts and degeneration in marrow containing bone and most commonly affects the femoral and humeral heads. And just sort of a little free caveat here, free, I don't know, pearl, I guess you could call it, Uh, other situations where you may see this type of presentation with avascular necrosis is in patients who have been on and off large doses of steroids, such as patients with severe asthma and so forth, and also in uh, patients who are chronic imbibers of alcohol. They can also develop avascular necrosis of the hips. So keep that in your radar screen if you get a question like that or see a patient more likely in real life. That's even better if you can make the diagnosis and treat the patient. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed these five questions and I'll be back soon with questions 11 through 15. Have a great day.